Welcome to the Rescue Church Podcast. Our desire is to see every person find a life full of freedom and purpose through Jesus. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Enjoy. And we've spent the past couple weeks unpacking and walking through another layer of freedom and purpose for your life. And I reiterate, I emphasize another layer because so many of us, for so many of us today, there is still so much more for your life. Think about where you guys are right now and, and like your age and what the next few years holds for you. But even if you're removed from high school and middle school and you're in college, you've graduated college, you're in a career, you've been married, you're just getting married, you've been married for 20, like there is still so much of our life. There are so many other layers. There's so much more. In fact, when it comes to our life, we've been saying it this way, there's still something that needs to be reclaimed and recovered. Because for the majority of believers, there's three parts that Jesus brings to us when we say yes to him. There's, there's three things that Jesus unlocks in our life. And if you've paid any attention to Jesus in the Bible, three is represented so many times. It wasn't just made famous by Dell Earnhardt, come on somebody. Uh, but before that, God was making the number three, Trinity, very special. And we spent a lot of time in week one unpacking that. So I won't go back into it, but I will show you for quick review the three things that Jesus unlocks in our life. And for the majority of believers, they're only experiencing one part of this. And the first one is rescue for our soul. Rescue for our soul. We get this. We, we, uh, we cling to this. We accept this. We, we go all in on this part. We like Jesus on the cross. We like Jesus taking my sin. Jesus dying my death, Jesus paying my penalty, right? We like that part. But there's more. There's more than just salvation for our soul. There's also freedom for our hearts. And there's also purpose for our life. So rescue for our soul, freedom for our heart, and purpose for our life. So it begs the bigger question, what are we having this conversation for? Because I have come to find out, especially with men, especially with guys, when we lose clear purpose and focus, we put forth minimum effort. I know, ladies, you don't struggle with this, but guys, we struggle with this. If we lose focus, if we, have, we lack clarity, we often put the minimum effort, and then that's normally, fellas, when we get into trouble. That's when we start getting involved in things we shouldn't be involved in. The, the, the vices and, and our hands get bored and we get involved in things that we should not be involved with. Bare minimum things that are distracting us. Again, ladies, I know you don't deal with distraction. But guys, we fall prey to distraction all of the time. And so here's what I'm trying to say to you. Maybe all you really have made claim to in your life is the rescue for your soul. Perhaps today you haven't even taken that step towards your journey yet, but you can take that step today. But for a lot of people, we accept Jesus, we pray the prayer, we check it on our connect card. We may even come to the altar and receive prayer. But then instead of experiencing a thriving life, I didn't say a perfect life, I didn't say a rich life. I said a thriving life. We just try to survive until we reach heaven. But there's more for you. And as we've walked through 
this the past two weeks. Life is lived much differently if you think that you are on a cruise ship. But when you realize that life is really more like a battleship, your perspective changes. Your readiness changes. Your preparation changes. Your discipline changes. I, one of my favorite things to do, this, when I worked at the YMCA back home, uh, I had the opportunity to work in the wellness department. I need to go back to the wellness department, but I was in the wellness department when I was there. And I got a chance to work alongside veterans who were in there either rehabbing or perhaps they were just trying to stay active. And I love sitting down, watching them work out, and listening to their stories. And there was a guy by the name of Roger Miller who was a machine gunner. And he wrote a novel of short stories, and he gave it to me one day. I remember reading that. And if I have any time to downtime, I'm normally kind of engaged in something around that time frame. Because I love learning their mentality, their work ethic, the way they viewed life. Because either there was a threat of war, they were in the war, or they came home from the war. Because of that, they lived their life differently. We've never really, I mean, even the things that we've gone through, people my age and people a little bit older than me, some of the conflicts that we've gone through. You remember 9-11? You remember the unity, first of all, that we felt? The patriotism, all those things. But then you remember for a while how responsive and it, like everything it was different. Like you were head on a swivel. You were alert. You were aware. But after a time, because it's so far removed, you may be engaged with it on internet, social media a little bit. Maybe you have some family members in the military, so you're a little closer. But for the majority of us, because it's lack of proximity and lack of exposure, we live like there's no threat of danger. We live like we don't have a part to play in this fight. So if you live your life like you are just on a cruise ship, it's going to be much different compared to the person who lives their life as if they are on the battleship. Let me show it to you this way. John 10, 10, we know this one. It's what we founded the church on. A thief, the enemy against you, has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy you. And if he can't kill you, he wants to kill what's inside of you. He wants to kill what you were made for, what you were made to do. But there's an alternative. There's a much better way. This is what I'm talking about. We hear something like that. We hear the preacher talk about hell, talk about the enemy and all those things. And so we, we sign up for Jesus saving us from an eternity of hell. But then we sentence ourselves to still live in a prison and shackle on this earth. And I want to try to tell you that Jesus didn't just come for salvation in heaven. That's a big part of it. That's a third of it. But there's two other parts to it. In fact, he says, I come, Jesus, I came to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect. He's not talking about your checking account, which would be nice. You still got to work for those things. He's not talking about that. He's talking about life in its fullness and not just to fill it, but as it says here, until you overflow. So why are we talking about freedom for your heart and purpose for your life? 
Because the enemy's job, his plan, his agenda is to thwart what you were made for. He wants, you, he wants to stop it. He might not can't get your soul because that's secure. That's been assured through Jesus, the blood of Jesus. You're, you're in heaven. He, he's lost you there. But he can still win a battle here. I love that first song. We're going to see a, the battle is yours. We're going to see a victory. That's all true. Jesus has already won the battle, but you have to learn how to enforce the victory. We're declaring that Jesus has won the battle, yet we're, our lives certainly don't reflect that. That's what we're talking about. And I find it interesting that when we talk about purpose, it's always associated with a role. In other words, what, am I, what do you do? What am I supposed to do? That can be easily interchanged with, like, what is the part that I play, right? And what, is, what, what did God create me to do? That word role, R-O-L-E, is actually of French origin, and it is derived from literally a roll, R-O-L-L, a roll of paper that an actor's part was written on. But before you were created for a role, which you were, you were created to first receive. And we've got it backwards. Because that's how we've been conditioned, and that's our culture. Like from the moment you step into grade school, it's all about what are you going to do, who are you going to be, what school are you going to go to, what career choice are you, and those things are important. But then we look at God and we think it's all about do, 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 but it's not. It's first about being, receiving God's love. Why is that important? Because it is through the love of God that we find life, John 10, 10, fullness. Freedom, purpose, healing, and mission. So when it comes to your life, there is something that has to be reclaimed and still recovered. That's what this series is addressing. The rescue and the redemption and the restoration of our life. Here's, that's why we say reclaim freedom. Because when you say yes to Jesus... We sign up for eternity, but there, I just need you to start thinking like from that moment in eternity back, from the moment you took your first breath, there is so much in your life that has happened to you, that you've been involved with, that you've done, that you've said, that has been done to you, that's been said to you, that has to be reclaimed, it has to be rescued, it has to be redeemed, it has to be restored. Why? Because if you are living out of that pain and that shame and that hurt and that wounding. How can you possibly be who God created you to be? Are you tracking with me? That's why so, there's, there's still so much in my life that needs to be reclaimed. There's so much in my life that I believe about myself as a result of something that happened to me 10 years ago. That's not the real me. You get that? Because when, I, when, I, when it happened to me 10 years ago, like, my, my soul wasn't secure. I hadn't found my rescue yet, right? Or, or it happened to me 10 years ago while I was still shapeable and moldable. And now I've lived under this falseness for so long. And so now everything that I see, my worldview, my perspective, my politics is all skewed because of lies and shame and hurt and wounding. 
those things have to be reclaimed, rescued, redeemed, and restored so that you can have the proper perspective on people, on your purpose, on your politics. Right now, because I'm not even really trying to get into political conversation, but a lot of us just project our politics onto our faith. That has to be reclaimed. You should filter your politics through your faith. That has to be reclaimed. That has to be redeemed. It has to be recovered. Reclaim freedom. There's something in my life that still needs to be reclaimed. There's something in my life that still needs to be recovered. How does that look in our life? Well, val continual validation, acceptance, worth. Belonging. If this isn't reclaimed and recovered by Jesus, then you will waste your life trying to win validation and acceptance from people you didn't get it from. How will you operate out of your trueness unless you realize that your true validation and worth and belonging comes first from God? Again, we filter these things out of the the falseness of our life, rather than the other way around. There's something that has to be reclaimed and recovered. Now, a little, I don't want to give you false advertising. I don't know that we ever reach the fullness of those things on this side of heaven. But what I do know is that God intended us to continue to journey and experience it until we get to heaven. Until we reach perfection. In fact, Philippians uh, 2. Can we throw that verse up? Philippians 2. This should be the very first slide. This is Paul. I admit that I haven't yet acquired the absolute fullness that I'm pursuing. I'm not there yet. But notice he is pursuing it. But I run with passion into his abundance. Into his fullness. So that I may reach the purpose that Jesus Christ has called me to fulfill. And wants me to discover that's my prayer for you guys that's the reason we're talking about freedom and purpose in fact Arrhenius which is a Greek bishop from around AD 130 he was responsible for overseeing and uh, um, leading the movement of churches and Christian communities in France around AD 130 said the glory of God is a human being fully alive the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Here's, here's what's heartbreaking. Is most of us don't even know what that looks like. Because we're basing it on the brokenness that we've seen growing up. The brokenness that's around us right now. The brokenness of our world. The fallenness of our communities. It's why our first mission must be freedom. What does freedom look like? Define it this way. It's journeying with Jesus through your past so that you can partner with Jesus for the future. You've got, like, how can you live out your purpose if you first don't recover and reclaim parts of you that have died, suffocated, and been told to be quiet? How? 
how can you trust Jesus to step out and do all that he's created you to do if you have a track record of being rejected and abandoned and over-promised and under-delivered? Like you're good, like it's, I'm not saying that you shouldn't project on God because it's only sensical to think if that's been your life, then that's how you're going to project it onto God. But what I am saying is you don't have to live that way. We can journey back with Jesus and reclaim what's been lost, recover what's been silenced, have it restored and redeemed and rescued so that you can experience, as Philippians 2 says, the fullness that Christ has called you to. Last week we began to unpack this with a simple step of intimacy with Jesus, a dailiness in his word and prayer, and then we finish it up by talking about Community, which is what I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about here today. Because listen to me, I don't know that you can ever fully reach your fullness without people around you. You have to have people that can look at you and call out the things that they see and call you up into what God has created you for. What I want to talk about today specifically, though, is what gives you the right to do that. Because some people think they just have the right because of who they are, because of a title, because of a burden. That's not always the case. You have to earn that right, but you absolutely must have that in your life. I'm so glad we have a student ministry here today, so I won't be alone in this, but how many of you grew up playing video games? Come on, throw your hands up. You still play video games, right? Come on. I know, I know. My favorite games ever were the games that allowed you to partner up with someone, to do co-op missions, right? It's me and my buddy. We're, we're, my all-time favorite still are the beat-em-up side-scroller games. I would play those all day, every day. I love them. Where it's just you walking on the screen like this the whole time, and you can, like, move up, and you can, like, move down, but that's it. You know what I'm saying? That's the only direction you got, and it's just, like, two, like, like that's it, right? Like, those are the best, like, the only moves you need. And then, you know, inevitably you get to the boss and you beat the boss and you get to the next level. I love the co-op missions. And this was before headsets and PS Plus and Xbox Live and all that. Like, I remember calling people on the phone and talking to them while we're playing. Yeah, man, like I'm over here. I'm, I'm on like Spawn B. Where are you at, right? We, we did it. Now, come on. But here's the definition of co-op. It involves mutual assistance in working toward a common goal. And we have to develop that in our life. And as a church, that's our next step, is to develop that type of relationship in this community. We call ourselves a community, but now it's time to live out in community. 1 John 4, 7 says, those who are loved by God, let his love continually pour for you, or excuse me, from you, to one another. In other words, a lot of people stop here. They receive the love of God. But the love of God was never intended to come to you and stop. To come to you and go through you. To one another. It's great that you come in here and you get filled up. It's great that you go to Winter Jam and have a great time. Do those things. Those are awesome. But there is a purpose. There is a mission attached to Sundays. Every Sunday, we don't pack the church up in a trailer. Every Sunday, the church stands up and they walk out the door. You are called to live towards God and towards one another. 
and this is why this next statement is so true. Because life change happens in the context of meaningful, listen to me, meaningful relationships. I hope that Sundays leave you wanting to change your life. I hope you come in and you get inspired and encouraged from the word of God and you look to see where you are and you, it's hopeful that God's going to do this or going to bring you there or you're going to make this change, you're going to make this decision. I hope you go through all of that every single Sunday. But Sundays don't change your life. What's brought forth change in your life is when you've had someone beside you on the journey. That's why Jesus didn't spend his time just preaching one day a week. He changed the world through 11 other people by spending time with them. Meaningful relationships. And if you're looking for an environment for that to happen, well, that's great. That's why we started meetups a year ago, which were intended to build a foundation to get us used to the rhythm of meeting outside of Sunday. But now it's time for us to take that next step. And we've got two meetups this month. One of them happens for the fellas, it's going to be March, excuse me, February 22nd, that's this Saturday, and it's going to be at 11 a.m. And during that time, we're going to spend some time hanging out, right, we're going to have some fun, I think we're playing paintball. And then after paintball, we're going to gather up at Falls Lake, and we're going to spend some time talking about what that next step is for us men, and how we're going to do this together, and what God's called us to do, no matter if you're single, married, parent, not parent, God has called us to do something as men and we're going to start walking through that together. The ladies will meet later this month. All that information will be on the website if it's not already up there. But here's why it's important. Leonard Sweet wrote in his book, 11 indispensable relationships that you cannot be without, which is basically like a co-op, especially a co-op handbook, okay? He argues that there are all different types of relationships that you need. But the top three that I love, he says you need a Yoda. You need a mentor. You need a Chuck Norris, someone who's always got your back. And you need a Bruno Mars, someone who will love you just the way that you are. You need those in your life. Now I want to show you this in Scripture. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this isn't on the screen. I'm just going to read you a few verses here. Some of you will know this story or at least the context around it. David, yeah, that David, shepherd boy David called by God to kill the giant with some measly stones in a slingshot, anointed by God as a boy to be the next king of his chosen people, that David. Some of you know that this great David that we talk about now, and we still think he's a great hero, and he was a hero of faith, that he also had a pretty severe moral failure, right? We know this. David, one day, out on the rooftop, Gazing out, sees Bathsheba naked, bathing on the sun, top of the house. Looks at her, wants her, desires her, and then figures out a way to get her. He sends out his soldiers, but he places her husband at the front of the battle. He brings her in, commits sin. Later on, her husband dies in battle. He did all that to try to cover it up, thinking no one else knew. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Some of you, with that one verse, 
even if you don't know the story, already know where it's going. And a lot of us would be mad that God would send someone like Nathan. But I just want to show you the help that it brings. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there are two men, he's using an example, listen, there are two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it and he grew it up with him and all his children, he shared his food, he drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler he had come to him and instead took the traveler's one little lamb that belonged to the poor man and he prepared it for the one who'd come to him. David, his response, the Bible says, is he burns with anger against the man, the one that took the little. And Nathan says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. Right, David? He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Right, David? And I can just picture David just getting puffing. Yeah, like tell me what happened. Yeah, this guy needs to get it. And then Nathan says, you are that man. Now, some of us hopefully haven't done anything quite to that extreme, but we've done things that we concealed and, and hid and we thought we got away from, and you remember that sulking feeling that all of a sudden it was brought to light. Can you imagine David in this moment? Nathan goes on to say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more, David. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in my eyes? You struck down Uriah, that's her husband, with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who's close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this for all of Israel to see. Flame emojis. Here's what's crazy. The name Nathan means gift. In that moment, do you think David was thankful for that gift? Picture this, just in your own life. Picture a Nathan coming into your life. And calling out blatantly, exposing some of the sin, bringing accountability. See, here's the deal. Nathan was a prophet. He was a gift to David. 
God would speak to Nathan, and then Nathan would tell David and all of Israel what God said. David, though, as the king, could have killed Nathan. In that moment, he could have drew his sword, killed Nathan. No one would have said anything. No one would have batted an eye. He could have continued to protect his secret. But as you continue to read the story, David's response is a response in healthiness. Immediately he turns and he repents. And he goes down a painful road of recovery and restoration. Now why is that? I think it's because Nathan spoke directly to his heart. This wasn't just anyone. He didn't do it from Facebook. He didn't get on Twitter and scream at David, right? He went straight to him. But there was something that gave Nathan the ability to look at David, the king, and tell him and expose him and bring it back in a healing way. And, and, and this is where um, the soapbox Christians need to take a step down for a second and lean in and listen. He didn't just witness it. In fact, he didn't witness it. God came to him and told him. The ability that, that Nathan earned the right to look into David's life and speak truth and clarity was because he had something called withness. It wasn't just a witness. He had withness. He was with David. He knew David. He did life with David. He knew David's story from the pasture all the way to the palace. He knew David. He had something deep and meaningful that gave him the ability to speak into his life. And some of you have given way too much weight and authority into your life to critics. And people who don't know you and don't know your situation and don't know anything about you. But you've given way too little weight to the people who do know you. The people who do love you. And the people that do have your best interests. Why is that? Why do we do this? Do you have a person? Do you have a Nathan that can speak into your life when you're not pursuing Jesus? But not just Jesus, also the life that he has for you. Listen to this. The same story recounted differently in 1 Chronicles 17 says, So Nathan went back to David and told him everything that the Lord had said in his vision. The very next line says, David went and he sat before the Lord and he prayed. And if you go read, I believe it's Psalms 51, which is the prayer that God says, Oh God, search me and know me. Create in me a pure heart and pure hands. What led David to that confrontation? What led David to go reclaim and recover what had been distorted? If David would have died in that moment after the sin, would he make it into heaven? His soul was secure. He loved God. He made a mistake. He trusted his lustful desires rather than desires of the spirit. So how did David reclaim that and continue to do good things for God? He went and he sat down before the Lord and he confessed and he repented and he prayed and he asked God to bring purity and cleanliness to his life. Who is it in your life? It doesn't have to be me. 
But who is it in your life that can speak into your heart and cause you to go sit before the Lord? Listen, we have to have that. I have, I have learned that, especially with my wife, that I uh, would much rather hear um, how much she loves me and how much she likes me rather than hearing what I'm doing wrong, right? Uh, I don't enjoy those conversations at all. But sometimes it's, sometimes it's um, intentional. Like we say, hey, we're going to sit down during this time and these are some of the things we're going to talk about. Sometimes it just pops up while we're in the kitchen cooking and cleaning up. But it, it centers around kind of this one question. Do you have, it's not really a question, it's more of like requests for change, right? Like, I, I know, Brooke, I know you love me. Like, I know that you're with me. I know that you're for me. So, therefore, I may not like what you have to say, but I trust what you have to say. So, I care what you have to say. If you don't have that with your spouse, let's start there. But then beyond your spouse, you need other voices that you can say, I might not like what you always have to say. But I know you love me, and therefore I trust what you have to say. And because I trust it, I care. Listen to me, especially you guys on this side. You're giving way too much power to people's voices in your life that do not matter, and way too little to people's voices in your life that do matter. Just ask anybody on this side of the room that's no longer in high school. <laughs> but here's the thing. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. The source may change, but the truth doesn't change. I want to talk about accountability for a second, and then we're going to finish up. Because you guys are in student ministry, you know this. You guys still are TSM, right, or did you change? Okay, cool. TSM, uh, you guys know this. You've been involved enough. We love, Christians, we love using the word accountability. We throw it out there. We wear it like a badge. Right, but I want to show you uh, something a little bit deeper. I want to show you what true accountability should look like in your life. And Joe Myers in his book, Organic Community, argues not so much for accountability, but this term that I'm now stealing and adopting called editability. Rather than accountability, the concept of editability, editability. Because when someone is holding you accountable, they're basically looking at you and telling you everything that's wrong. Like an accountant. Come on, if you're doing taxes right now or you just finished, you know, those conversations are not always fun to sit in, right? Um, but Paul teaches this. In 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about love. In the description of love, he says, love holds no records of doing wrong. But yet when we want to bring accountability to someone, it's always when we want to bring accountability to someone else, not how we want to receive accountability. All we want to talk about and focus on is what's wrong. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have, again, you need the Yoda, the mentor. You need someone that can sit across from you and tell you like it is. And no, you shouldn't get a pass for doing wrong. But I want to show you just the difference of, of an editor Versus an accountant. And you remember this, right? You guys are in it right now. Like, remember the teacher, the English teacher who would grade your, like, 11th grade essay with the red pen? Right? And you worked so hard the night before to get this essay done, right? And you turned this essay in. And then she wrote all over your, your nice little formatted document. She wrote all over it. She didn't do this to embarrass you. 
She didn't do this to make your life miserable, although it probably feels that way. No, the editor instead was saying this. Unless you just ripped off your paper from Google somewhere. This is what they were saying. There is some great stuff in here. There's just a better, more effective way of saying it. Accountability is designed to prevent you from doing bad. But edibility is designed to help you do good. As a parent of three kids, I could ram my head through that brick wall right there talking to my three babies about not doing something. That's not going to change anything. I can teach them to fear me. I can teach them to fear consequences. But nothing will happen until the heart is changed. And the heart doesn't change by focusing on doing bad. The heart is changed when you focus on the goodness of it. And that's why in your small groups and your Christian relationships, accountability has failed. Because you've made accountability the goal. Accountability isn't the goal of relationships. It's the fruit of relationships. Because if it is a true relationship, accountability will already happen. You won't have to force it. Because I care about you. I love you and I trust you because I trust and love you. I care about what you have to say and vice versa. It's the fruit of relationship, not the goal. Editability is accountability done in love. So, so we spent two weeks talking about the good things that God has for you and the purpose God has for you and the calling that God has for you and the role that you have to play and all of those things. But you have to position yourself in the middle of a redemptive community that can call out and call you up into the good that God has for you. And not done with a goal to keep you in good standing. But a goal to see your heart fully alive. A goal to see your passions awaken, your heart deepen, and your life fulfilled. Again, I don't always want the truth from Brooke, but I listen to it because I know she loves me, and ultimately because I love her. There's a lot of things that keep us from having difficult conversations. Uh, they won't listen. Who am I to confront this? I don't want to risk pushing them away. I'm not even sure what I would say would make a difference. But here's what we have to resolve today, okay? Meetups are great, relationships, hanging out, all the things that we've done over the past year were phenomenal. But as we as a church are committing ourselves both to God and to one another, not saying something is no longer an option. We have to develop wholesome, healthy, true relationships. So I want to show you this and then we will be finished. It's something that is practical. You can take it home and use it today with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, your boss. Maybe you've heard it before. It's something called the R3 principle. A mentor of mine, Anthony Braswell, at North Park Church taught me this several years ago. And I instantly implemented it in my marriage. And it served us well. The first thing is the right time. The right time. When I've worked all day. And my wife has worked all day, and we get home, and I walk in the door, and my three kids start climbing me like the tree of life, and they're monkeys, and 
then we have to do dinner, and then we have to play, and then we have to do homework, and then we have to do bath, and then by then it's about 8, 8.30, and then we're both spent probably not the best time to bring up something. Now, it still happens. If it's important, it'll happen. You just have to be intentional. Now, I don't know what your life looks like, but we've all been guilty of walking up to someone and throwing up all over them. And that's not good for anybody. And then we get mad when they seem to not care or to not respond or the husband's facing out. Huh? Because we've chosen the wrong time to do this. Be sensitive about it. Don't bombard. Don't ambush. Listen, it's going to feel superficial, but intentionality is not superficial. Set up a time to have the conversation. Here's what you don't want to do. Lift up the rug and just, because that'll just build. The right time is important. The right place is good. Maybe not when you have all your friends over and they're all standing around you in the kitchen. That's not maybe the best time or place. I don't know when that is for you. Maybe, maybe when you're out on a date night for the first time in like two months and your wife looks at the bank account and then wants to talk about, probably not the best time to talk about finances, right? Let's not do that. I know you guys have never done that before. We've, we've done that a few times, learned our lesson. And then most importantly, the right spirit. Make sure that your heart is in the right place. And I know I'm talking a lot about marital relationships, but this is equally as important for your family, for your friends, teachers, coaches, team members. Right time, right place, right spirit. The goal of redemptive community is not to expose and to condemn. Why would a believer of Jesus ever call someone out for the goal of exposing and condemning them? Do you realize that your life should be on display, on this monitor, for everyone to see? Every thought, everything you've done, every sin, it should be on display for everyone to see. It should be exposed. But someone stood in the middle, right? Someone covered it up. Why are we so quick to expose and condemn? No, the goal of redemptive community is to reach out and to restore. Because that is what Jesus did for you. And listen to me, friends, that is what is required for us in this life. To experience freedom and healing. And to walk with purpose and mission. It's not to punish, but to build. Our motive can't be revenge, but love. And I'll just say this, if you enjoy correcting people, there's probably something wrong with your heart. If you can't approach it with compassion, then don't approach it until you can. Yes, be bold, but not to expose. And listen, why is all this important? Because if we want to know Jesus more intimately, if you want to uncover more layers of freedom and healing for your life from your sin and your shame and your past so that you can partner with Jesus for the future, if you want to have lives that really count, 
have to be, you have to be, you have to be in community with a few other believers with the same heart and goal, which is what we'll talk about next Saturday, men. That's what the ladies will talk about the following weekend, ladies. And at the end of this, this, this is every time that we try to, you know, confront something that we feel like is, is wrong or is rubbing us the wrong way, there's tension. Every time we do this, we pray that this is the outcome, right? So Nathan is obedient to the Lord. He goes to David. He confronts David. He delivers what God says. David's response, we know, is to go before the Lord, lay down before the Lord and say, who am I? That's his response. Who am I? Oh, God, that you would create in me a pure heart, pure hands. Oh, God, that you would search my heart and know me. And eventually David has a son. And through that son comes the birth of Jesus, the redemption of the world. You know what he named his son? Nathan. Don't reject the thing. Don't reject the very purpose, the very freedom that God is bringing to you. The the first part of that verse is the Lord sent Samuel, or Nathan, excuse me, in Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan. What if David's response was anger? What if David's response was to turn him away, to kill him? Look what was a byproduct, not just David's healing and freedom from the thing that he did a purpose that brought forth his son that brought forth Jesus on this earth that brought forth rescue to you freedom to you purpose to you thank you for listening join us each week here on the pod or live in Durham keep up with us by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Rescue Church NC